Hello, and welcome to the Pursuing Veritas podcast, a podcast dedicated to reflecting on theology, history, and culture from the perspective of a follower of Jesus. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Pursuing Veritas podcast. So thankful that you're joining us again or listening for the first time as we launch our new series on Urban Legends in the New Testament. As you will hear in today's recording, Urban Legends of the New Testament is a class that's being taught at the Rock Church of St. Louis on those common ideas and interpretations or misinterpretations that we have of the New Testament that may or may not stand up to scrutiny. In this first class, we talk about the approach that we're going to take in this series, as well as looking at one of our first urban legends about Christmas. I hope you enjoy what we have to say today and that you enjoy this series. Glad to have you back. All right, um, so this is the Urban Legends of the New Testament class. Um, you're in the wrong place, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Get out. <laughs> it's like a, um, so just going to start, with, start off with the story here. In 1876, there's a whaling ship. It's called the Velocity. Velocity is sailing off the coast of Australia. In Australia, this island called New Caledonia. And as they're sailing, some sailors look out into the water and they see uh, what look like rough waves breaking on a beach. And the beach looks pretty sandy. Uh, and so they go to their map and they mark an island in this location. They call it Sandy Island because it looks like a sandy island. And as the velocity returns to port, they take their map with them, and other map makers see the map, and soon other maps are marking this island, Sandy Island. Uh, and this continues up until 2012, so about 130 years after the velocity marks this map, you could look at maps and you could find Sandy Island marked on it. Google Maps, actually. You could get online and you could, you could Google Sandy Island, and you'd be able to pull up this little island off the coast of Australia. But then a few years later, an oceanographer is looking at map, ocean floor maps of the region, and he's, he's confused because it doesn't look like there should be an island with how deep the ocean floor is in that location. So he's very interested in, in what this island is and, and what's, what the geography of this the situation is. And so he gets on a plane and he goes out to where the island is marked. And there's no island. And in fact, of course, there has never been an island. What happened was the whaling ship made a mistake on their map back in 1876. And for 130 years, people were perpetuating that mistake. They were continuing to mark that island on their map. And so, Sandy Island isn't real. It never was real. It was simply an urban legend. Now, we all probably know what urban legends are. They're commonly circulated myths, things that have some cultural currency. People uh, think they know that this thing is common knowledge, but then if you dig a little deeper, it's actually not common knowledge. And just like the presumed existence of Sandy Island, there are urban legends that exist in the New Testament as well. These ideas that we have about Jesus or his apostles or the New Testament church that may or may not stand up to scrutiny once we dig into that. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to explore these urban legends of the New Testament. 
Uh, we're going to see if they're grounded in truth, if they're totally right, they're totally wrong, or maybe there's some mix of right and wrong in them. So I'm a big schedule guy, so I just want to walk through kind of what we're going to be looking at these next several weeks. Uh, so today is obviously <coughs> our intro day. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at Christmas legends. We're actually going to look at one Christmas legend today to kind of get ourselves going. We're going to look at some more Christmas legends next week. Then we're going to kind of walk through, this is more or less chronological, kind of walk through um, the Gospels and then the, the New Testament church. So we'll do, uh, we'll talk about who Jesus was, if he was a carpenter. We'll talk about some of his teaching. We'll talk about some Christology, if Jesus was only human or not. Uh, we'll talk about some Easter legends, some things associated with Easter. Uh, and then we'll kind of shift gears to Acts and the Epistles. Uh, we'll look at if Paul was a tent maker, this idea uh, of what it means to confess Jesus, if you just say you believe. This passage in Corinthians about jewelry, head coverings, things like that. Um, and then we're going to end with a uh, discussion about Revelation, uh, the rapture of the Antichrist. Yes, uh, we actually did a, cl I did a class on Revelation a couple uh now. Uh, we're probably going to revisit that at some point, but yeah, that's uh, yeah. a deep one. When, when I was in campus Bible study at the Rumsfeld, we mm -hmm. did a whole semester on Revelation. Yep. We didn't even go, uh, say, much deeper. We were taking a chapter a week. Yep. We didn't even touch the surface. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I was in a Bible study once, and <laughs> I think it was, if it wasn't two full years, it was really close to it. We were like Revelation 7 or something like that. And it was every week. And it just, yeah, it was crazy. How old are you, I am 26. So, <laughs> think about that for a second. My wife just had a birthday this week, so she's about the same age as I am. Are we ever the same Yes, we are. <laughs> so this is uh, this is kind of the schedule that we're gonna do our best to follow. You'll notice we end March 25th. That's a little different this year. Usually we try to keep classes kind of on a semesterly basis, sort of thing. Uh, but Easter is very early this year. It's April 1st, and then uh, there are some other things going on in April. So we're kind of gonna take the month of April off, and then we'll probably start our summer study after that. That's probably now this didn't treat my daughter when I told her. Yeah. She goes, she's very smart. Mm -hmm. She loves like Greek mythology and Oh yeah. And she loves Jesus. Okay. Mm -hmm. She goes, I go. Well, if you want uh to give her something I was thinking that. Yeah. Take take that and I'll give you I have another handout too. You can maybe intrigue her with as well when we get there. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of our basic approach. And again, hopefully I mean usually we'll have a handful of other folks that come in as well. So again, don't won't just have to listen to Sometimes a small group's good. Yeah. yeah. I told you how I feel about it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't mind it. No, no. It's, it's, I, I, I will say, as long as there's one person here, I will be happy to, happy to have a conversation with him. So, uh, any questions about that? Is that pretty straightforward? Mm -hmm. um, all right. The next thing I want to do is we're going to kind of talk about the approach. How do we know an urban legend is an urban legend and not actually the right way to interpret or understand something? So this is uh, just kind of an uh, explanation of the lens we're going to use to kind of look at these things each week. And then we're going to dive into uh, 
a myth that, or a legend that we'll, we'll talk about that. So, um, one of the things I will always say, and if there were any other people here today, they would say, oh yes, Jake, you say this all the time, it's, it's uh, context is king and rules the meaning of everything. Context is king and rules the meaning of everything. And what I mean by that is, to properly understand and properly apply the scriptures, we need to understand what it's saying in its context, what it's saying in its original setting. And once you understand what it was said originally, then you can understand what it means for us today as well. And so context is the information that kind of informs our understanding. For example, knock knock. Babylon. Babylon. Babylon, I'm not really listening to you anyways. Right? <laughs> now I am listening to you, but right? the reason that that might elicit a chuckle right, is because of content. You know how a knock-knock joke works. Right? You know that Babylon, the place name, sounds a little bit like Babylon, the, the two words, right? right? They're in opposition to each other, they're, they're funny. That's context. That's how context works. Uh, you, go on a, you go on a missions trip to someone, or you talk to someone who's a, who is not a native English speaker, or who doesn't have the sort of information that we have to understand that joke. Knock-knock jokes are really weird. I remember I was in Mexico, I was talking to some kids, and I had some, I thought, I thought they were hilarious knock-knock jokes about soccer. No, no dice, like no connection whatsoever. It didn't make sense to me. They didn't have the same context that I did to make those things funny. Soccer, football, whatever, everything, right? But that's how context works. And so uh, there are five kind of key areas of context that we're going to use these next several weeks to make sense of the scriptures. Right? Um, and they are historical context. Okay, we're going to ask what the historical setting of what is going on is, what, what uh, archaeological and historical data is going to back up what's going on. How did life work back then, right? Uh, there's no electricity, there's no plumbing, right? There's no, it's very, no building codes. It's a very, very different world that you have to insert yourself into, and you have, we have to really consider kind of how those things work out historically. And so by considering the historical information of the first century, we can help make sense of what is going on for our 21st century mind. So historical context is our first topic. Second context is the theological context. We need to understand the world that, uh, the theological world that people who are writing the scriptures and who are involved in the scriptures are entering into. What are their guiding questions? What are their larger concerns? What do they think about God? What influences are they feeling? Today, for example, if you talk to anyone, we are very concerned as American Christians with individual personal faith, right? Uh, lots of people are, are, have questions about gender and sexuality issues, right? Immigration is a big thing right now. Like, those are some concerns, whichever side of the fence you're on, right? when it comes to those things, those are some of the questions that we tend to be wrestling with. And those are somewhat questions that the ancients had, but they are oftentimes concerned with very different theological things. And so we need to recognize that. Not that we can't speak and have a conversation, uh, with the ancients about that, we have to recognize that the theological context is going to be very different for most of the writers of scripture than it is for us. The third context is the literary context. The writings of the New Testament are just that. They're writings. They're, they're books. They're letters. 
Uh, and that means that we need to understand how they are being written, how they are being received, how they're being put together. Uh, we have this wonderful thing called chapters and verses. Paul, when he sat down and wrote Romans, did not write in chapter and verse. He wrote as a, a full-form letter. And so we need to sometimes remove ourselves from the chapter and verse approach uh, and step back and go, oh, this is a letter to a church, and read Romans first in that way before we read it in terms of, oh, here's this, this nice little sense unit here as a chapter, and here's this nice little sense unit here as a verse. Uh, literary context also can mean looking at how other um, non-biblical forms of ancient writing were used and functioned, and kind of using those as examples to look at what's going on. So, uh, for example, uh, I don't know how much of this we're going to get into in this class, but as an example, uh, there are other histories in the ancient world, there are other historians, so if you want to understand how, for example, the book of Acts functions as history, it can be really helpful to look at those other historians and help that help you understand how Acts, the book of Acts, is working. That's all literary context. Our fourth context is cultural context, right? Our culture and our worldview do a lot to shape how we act and how we view the world around us. The same is obviously true for those human authors that God uses to write the New Testament. Our culture is very different than the first century culture. And so our expectations of how things work are sometimes going to be very different. We're going to touch on this a little bit today. Um, the first myth we're going to look at. But kind of uh, standing back and saying, oh, this is something that's very important in all our culture, and this is something that is very important in the ancient culture. That can be very helpful. The, uh, the major example of this is, as Americans, we tend to be very guilt-centered. Guilt is a huge part of our lives. Um, in the ancient world, it's not guilt that motivates people, it's honor and shame. And those are related concepts, but the way it plays out is often very, very different. So if you look at the parable of the prodigal son, for example, as Americans, we tend to read that through the lens of guilt. But if you, but Jesus and his original audience would have looked at that through the lens of honor and shame. And if you do that, the parable of the prodigal son looks a little bit different what we're used to sometimes. And so that's the lens of, uh, that's the cultural context lens that we'll sometimes look at. And then the fifth and final context we're really going to look at is the linguistic context. The New Testament is written in Greek. We read it in English. That makes a difference because with the translation always comes interpretation. And so we're going to get back into the Greek as much as possible. But not only that, but it's a, the New Testament, New Testament is written in Greek for people who have a Hebrew or an Aramaic or a Latin background. So there are other linguistic ideas and concepts that really are going to come into play as well. And so we're going to pay attention to all of this. Uh, we're going to dig in to what that can mean. All right, so by paying attention to these contexts, uh, we can not only understand the writings of the New Testament better, but we can avoid making some of the urban legend mistakes that have led to some of these urban legends. All right? by digging into these contexts and understanding, oh, this is probably what this, this passage means. You can avoid misreading the New Testament in the process. One final thing, uh, there are basically two types of urban legends that we're going to talk about in this class. Uh, the first is just like the Sandy Island episode. All right? 
These are urban legends that are mistakes. They are factually incorrect. There is, uh, there's, it's an error. There's nothing substantial behind that urban legend. It's just like Sandy Island. It doesn't actually exist. A second type of urban legend we're going to look at are misleading legends. So mistakes and misleading legends. These are legends that contain some truth, but also some falsehood. And often the way they're presented is just simply going to lead you in the wrong direction. So a really good example of this is, think about Coca-Cola. Have you ever heard that Coca-Cola originally contained cocaine? All right, that's an urban legend. But it's this type. It's a it's a misleading urban legend. Up until 1929, Coca-Cola syrup did contain parts of the cocoa leaf, right? What cocaine comes from. So that that part is true. But if you had hundreds of gallons of Coca-Cola syrup, it would only be a couple of grams of that leaf. So it's not. It wasn't actually enough scientifically to be addictive the way that cocaine might be. Right? And so this is a misleading urban legend. Yes, Coca-Cola did contain cocaine up until 1929, but it didn't contain cocaine the way that, I don't know, cocaine could contain cocaine, right? It's a, it's a misleading sort of thing. And some of the legends that we're going to look at are just like that. It's more about misleading us to think one thing or the other rather than there being a very clear true or false argument that we can any questions on our approach or uh, any of these contacts? All right. So we are going to dig into our first urban legend. Um, first urban legend we're going to look at is that Jesus is born in a barn because there is no room for him in the inn. How many of you have heard that before? Jesus is born in a barn. All right. Because there's no room for them in the end. Now, this is a very standard Christian story, right? Think about this. We just had Christmas. So if you watched uh, any number of Christmas movies, right, uh, you may have read some books about Christmas. You may have heard some sermons. Uh, it's in artwork, right? Uh, my family, I, as I grew up, I, it may have been Thomas Kincaid. I'm not entirely sure. But it's basically, basically Jesus in, like, this big cave sort of thing. And there's candles on the inside all. There, you know, there are all these animals and shepherds kind of gathered around in this very kind of um, uh, rustic hut sort of thing, right? Like that's, that's where Jesus was born, right? Very, very common, okay? Um, and the reason Jesus is born in this barn or, this, or sometimes a cave is because there's no room for Jesus in the inn. And when we hear in 21st century Americans, we will very often think of I don't know, the Holiday Inn, right, or Motel 8. Probably not something quite that nice, obviously, but the idea that there's a sort of hotel or inn sort of thing in the ancient world that people, that Jesus could have gone to and could have been born at, but that doesn't work out for whatever reason, right, because there's no room. But what does the Bible say about this? Well, part of the problem with this legend is that we have two Christmas stories, right? We have Matthew's Christmas story, which is Matthew 1.18 to about 2.12. And then we have Luke's Christmas story, which is about Luke 2.1 to Luke 2.21. And when we tell the Christmas story at Christmas, we tend to combine these two stories, 
great, which there's nothing wrong with that, but that's what we do. We combine these two stories, and when we combine the stories, we tend to fill in the gaps that they might have. Right? So this is part of what's going on here. Another part of what's going on is that there are actually other ancient stories about Jesus' birth. There's this uh, probably 4th century document called the Proto-Evangelium of James. It's not actually written by James, it's just said it's written by James. And sometimes documents like that get used to interpret and fill in the gaps in the Christmas story. So in the Proto-Evangelium of James, for example, Jesus is born in a cave. Right? Now, as we're about to see, Matthew and Luke are very vague on precisely where Jesus is born. But things like the part of the Evangelium of James get used to kind of fill in that gap. Right? Because they're old, ancient sources. They're not scripture, but they can help us understand. That's, that's a lot of the things. So here's what we're going to do here. Um, I'm going to have us uh, take a few moments, and we're going to look at Luke 2, and we're going to look at uh, specifically Matthew 2 here. Uh, just take a moment. write these up on the... Let's do, uh, just take a, a couple minutes. And look at these verses. And you gotta get another Bible if you want. Just take, just on your own or together. Oh, okay. Um, um, oh, no, no, that's that's definitely not gonna help. No, that's not gonna help either. Sorry. I guess okay, I got this. Um, just take a couple minutes, read through those verses, see if you can find precisely what is said about where.
Alright, good. What'd you find? Lay in the manger, alright. Well, we found something that we didn't know. Alright. Came to the house. Ah, I asked you, Matthew 211. Came to the house. Whoa. What? The what? what? Alright. So, there are the, the, precisely those two verses. If you look at uh, Luke 2 7, says, uh, and she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's the ESV translates it. Right. Um, similarly, Luke two sixteen says, "And they, the shepherds, went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger." Right. Okay. So there's Jesus in a manger, and there's no room for them in the inn. That's what Luke says. And then Matthew two eleven says, uh, "This is about the, the magi, the wise men, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him." So, what's going on here? First of all, we have a location where Jesus is born. No, right? It does not say, Matthew and Luke do not say anything about this. They simply say that he's laying in a manger, right? which is, of course, a food trough for animals. Or, it's a place you keep your new straw for your bedding. Or that is where People bedding or animal bedding. Because in the ancient world, you don't have mattresses and box springs, right? You sleep on blankets on top of straw. So a manger is simply a place to hold straw. All right, and then we have this reference to the house, right? The house, right? Whatever. Okay. So what do we need to make sense of this le this legend? First of all, is the linguistics of this. All right. Uh, Luke two seven. There is no room for them in the. The uh, ESV is a, uh, follows the old KJV. The English Standard Version is, is a member of the King James Version family of Bibles. So it sticks with this, this traditional, very rich language that we have that says there's no room for him to be in. The word in Greek is katalumatai. Katalumatai means, this is the way Greek works, you get a semantic range, you get a number of things Catalumatai elsewhere is translated bedchamber, lodging, that's where the ESV gets in, so the lodge, that sort of thing, or accommodation. And that's what that word means, catalumatai. It's a place where you sleep. That's the meaning, right? There's no, if you want to be hyper-literal in translating the Greek of, of Luke 2 7, you say, there's no room for them in the place where people sleep. Okay? Boom. That's what that means. Uh, Matthew 2.11 says they came into the oikon. Oikon is just the form of oikos, which is, of course, house. Very, very common word in Greek. Uh, always means house. There's no other way to interpret that. It means house. I don't even know if I should interject here. I should just show the listen. No, you're good. But I talk a lot. Um, so I've always heard, at this point... Wait, where are you? Sorry. I'm in Matthew. Matthew, okay. When the Magi came to him, that he was old enough, mm -hmm. that he was maybe two or three. Mm -hmm. And my, my thought is, this isn't telling us where he was born, it's just telling us that he's in a house right. and that with is a, his mother. Right. And that is, a, that is one way to interpret this. Absolutely. The next question is, of course, why would Mary and Joseph stay in Bethlehem for two years after he's been born and just going for a second? 
we, we can dig into all right. sorts of things like this. Uh, but it would have taken time for the Magi to get, because they're walking, they're on camels, to get to where they're going. They don't have a Learjet, they don't have a, you know, a, a car. And they stop in Jerusalem, right? I mean, it's, not, it's, it's going to take time. Right? Unless it happened beforehand. And they saw them. And also, this also depends on what we think the star is, which we might talk about next week. What is the sign? Because in the Greek, it just means the sign in the heavens. That's what the star, right? Uh, but what, what was it? Supernova, that's a possibility, right? Uh, if you look at, because we can obviously go back, kind of in, in, back in time to see where planets would have been and things like that, there's actually a very unique astrological lineup of the planets. Perhaps like like Thor, precisely. Um, <laughs> like, but the realms, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that happens in the years around when we think Jesus was born. And so if these guys are actually, if the Magi, which is the Greek word for magician, if they're astrologers, they're, they're going to know all about the, the lineup of the planets. So there's a timing issue, too. Like, what year do you think Jesus was born? All, all of these things are surrounding us here. Um, and all of that's important. But for this legend, we can put them in the house two years later, or we can put them in the house the night of. Which, whichever, whichever way you want to go is totally fine with me. Linguistically, Luke says there's no room for them in the place where people sleep, and Matthew says they're in a house shortly thereafter, whether it's two years or right after. Right. Right? So we'll use those as our two linguistic data points. The other data points we need to consider is culture. Ancient hospitality culture is very different than our hospitality culture today, right? There's no such thing as a hotel in the modern sense. The closest thing you get would be a village house, which might work like, like a hostel does. There's kind of going to be this one place in town. Maybe it's where the magistrate has their offices and they keep tax records and things like that. But there's going to be a big room in there where, in theory, people can spend the night traveling through and they don't know someone. That's a that's a little more reserved for bigger towns where it's going to be more, usually walled cities. So you go to a walled city so you're not robbed in the middle of the night. Otherwise, it's almost always better to just sleep out, uh, you know, basically camp, right? Uh, so it would be kind of weird if Bethlehem had one of those. But think about why Matthew and Luke tell us Joseph and Mary are going to Bethlehem for the census, right? So if they're going to go for a census, they're going back to a birthplace of someone, there's probably going to be family there. So one of the best ways to look at where Joseph and Mary are heading is in the terms of ancient culture. They're going to spend time with extended family. Right? I just did this for Christmas, right? Went back for Christmas, went to my parents' house, and we did the big family Christmas with all 38 people, right? And everybody came and stayed at my parents' house. Aunts, uncles, grandma, grandpa, right? Everybody showed up and spent the night with me. This is the sort of thing that we would expect to see in the ancient world. Did they use stuff like that back then? Oh, yeah. That's, that's the way life works. That's uh, the way life works most of the time. Most of the time, you actually have the head of house, and then he has his kids, and then they have kids, and everyone's in the same abode. Wasn't yep. it somewhere in here mentioned about the animals? Did you see animals? I didn't, but there has to be more to destroy than that. 
What's it say? I'm asking, isn't there more to it? I've read it a thousand times, I know, mm -hmm. but... Who are the animals? Shepherds were keeping their flocks. Yes. They didn't make their flocks look like. But the reference to animals is actually in Isaiah. It's prophetic. It's the idea that there's going to be an ox and a lamb that, that, that basically are present in Jesus' word. It's the closest reference to animals. But they are not in Matthew. And if it's an Isaiah, then it has to be. It's very easy to interpret that and say, well, yeah, shepherds, sheep, ox, travelers from a foreign land. All right. Present. Prophetic. I'm just I'm just telling you it's there. Well, I'm just <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not getting mad. I'm oh, just, no, no. I'm just, okay, I'm, okay. Yeah. I'm just, again, one of the things I want to see about these legends is how much we have read into this, right? It's right. Like, we've all just, I've seen it. It's the, little, the story of the little drummer boy, right? And there are all the animals there. I think there was a new Christmas movie this year that came out. It was it's a yeah, I didn't see it, but it looked like it was from the perspective of the animals, it right? Is. Okay. So, like, that's that's how we tell the story. But it's not like Matthew and Luke go, oh, yeah, the ox and lamb kept time. Or in Bayless' case, the marbles. Right. Right. Or the camels here, right? We've been in several lives. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they're, and they're, they're, the animals are everywhere. It's beautiful. <laughs> Wonderful. I don't really know if I want you to it's a very this It's a very authentic smell. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm enjoying my myth, okay? <laughs> Which is fine. We can all enjoy our myth. Um, now, so that's the cultural context. Joseph and Mary are probably going to stay, spend time with extended family. All right? Now, the final thing we need to do to make sense of this legend is to look at what ancient homes would look like. <coughs> what does a house look like in the ancient world? Now, how do we know this is what houses look like? Well, this is, you have lots of archaeological evidence on it. It's up on Instagram, right? The problem with archaeology is we tend to only have archaeology at a foundational level. We don't necessarily always have it up high. But you can also look at history. There are plenty of historians who will tell you what life looks like, and they will describe homes to you. All right. So these these are mock-ups based on kind of those two things: archaeology and what people have said about homes. So look at uh, at least the top two here. And I apologize. This is black and white, so it might be a little difficult to see. Hey, um, this is. Top picture is going to be a uh, more rural, kind of lower income type home, right? Smaller, single family dwelling, all right? Look how this works. You walk into the front door where the guy would be probably uh, supposed to be a goat of some sort, uh, is walking in, right? You've got this little courtyard thing. Where the animals stay, you probably have pens and storage of some sort in the back. And then you ascend the ladder, you go upstairs, and that's the living space. As we all know, hot air rises, right? So if you have the animals underneath you, you can actually help keep you when it's cooler. Right? 
Um, no, for, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have smelled special in this place, right? That's one one sort of option. If you go down a step, this is this is a larger dwelling. This is a multi-family unit. This is going to be probably a father and several of his children who would live in something like this. Um, and you have basically what amounts to kind of a barn on the first level, and then the, a bunch of the second level is it's going to be dwelling dwelling spaces. All right, uh, may or may not have kind of an open courtyard feel in the middle. If you think about uh, if you see the Lord of the Rings films, they do a really good job of this kind of architecture. When it, when it comes to Rohan, you kind of have the barn, you kind of get like this open area in the middle, and you've got storage on top. That's that's a pretty common way to build. So, these are two options. The option on the bottom is what we would call the lowest income side style house. This is probably what is going to be most common in most places, especially places like Bethlehem, which are just little tiny cities. You don't need to build up, you just build out, right? Space is not quite at the premium that it's going to be in places like Jerusalem or Rome. And so what you do here is you just have a single family dwelling. Ranch. And it's it's a ranch, exactly. It's a ranch. Yep. Um, and you're going to have oftentimes three rooms. You're going to have this room on the left, which is pretty small. You're going to have this room in the middle, which is oftentimes going to have a kitchen. You're going to have a room on the right, which is very oftentimes where people are going to sleep. Okay? And so what you have here is on the far left, you have what amounts to the animal room. This is where you pen up animals. Okay? And then in the middle, you're going to have the family common space. And then on the other side, it's either a guest room or it's just where all the sleeping stuff is all the time. Yes. Question that just popped in my head. So why were Mary and Joseph even looking at an inn to even know there wasn't room for them if they were headed to the family's house? So here's the kicker. That word that we interpret in, remember, that just means place where people sleep. That is how you refer to where people sleep in any of these houses. It refers to this, that's a way to use that word. It is the specific room, okay? It would be akin to there was no room for them in the bedroom, right? So this, this top picture here, that would mean there are too many people up top, okay? The second one, there are too many people up on that second floor. And then this bottom one, it's there are too many people in here, okay? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're like there's no place to sit. Right? Childbearing is a messy process that takes time, right? And there are things that you want around to make sure your baby is okay. Uh -huh. So it is entirely possible that what Luke is saying is Jesus is born in the animal room in the house because there's not enough privacy in the guest room. So it was basically, to me, it looks like a house barn. Mm -hmm. Okay, a house barn. Yep. Yep. House. yep. Or a barn house. Yep. Which, if that's how you want to look at it, it's perfect. The point of looking at all this is, we need to have all this information in mind before we talk about what Jesus is for. It is entirely possible, and I tend to subscribe to the fact that this is. Probably the type of house that Jesus was born in. Jesus is born over on the side of the house where the animals were as a, as a means of privacy and protection from all 
Yes. Just really have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. Mm-hmm. Just, I, I'm not really a farm kind of girl. Sure. So, um, I grew up on a farm, so I can speak to this at some level of experience. Uh, it's animal refuse. If you only bring the animals in at night, and you make sure there's lots of fresh straw on a regular basis, it's not a problem. You burn in your house? Well, no. Well, I mean, yes, sometimes, but that's special instances for us. But it would be very easy. So for us, we had a two-story barn. We had the animals on the first store, and we had our hay and straw on the second. And we'd just bring straw down constantly, and we'd put it you know, once or twice a week, and it would take care of any sort of problems that had in the barn. Now, the animals are outside most of the time, but it's actually, it's pretty clean. Now, it's not hospital, right, delivery room clean, but it's it's fairly clean to have an animal to, to, to if you have fresh straw, to do that. Now, remember, Jesus is laid in the manger, right? That's where the fresh straw comes from. So that's going to be as clean as it can possibly be in the ancient world. That's going to be a really, really safe place. Especially if it's not necessarily the manger for the animals, but it's the manger for what people are going to sleep on. It's kind of the bedding manger. That's going to be the best of the best stuff that people have. So, okay. So, what are kind of the big takeaways from this? My mind's getting low. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> the first thing I want to uh, recommend for us is that we read the Bible on the Bible's terms. We have all heard these stories. I, I, I doubt you're going to read anything or read a story in over the next several weeks that you haven't read or heard before, right? We're all fairly familiar with the Bible, okay? But what we need to do is we need to read the Bible on the Bible's terms. We need to look and see what's actually there and sometimes what's not actually there, right? What does it mean that Matthew and Luke don't mention him? What does it mean that they don't give us a specific place that Jesus was born? Unless Matthew is giving us the specific place where Jesus was born. Right? Maybe Matthew means house because he knows Jesus was born in a house, which is what you would call the whole complex. Right? Let's read the Bible in the Bible's terms. That's the first, that's the first thing. Which is admittedly difficult. Right? I've studied, this is what I do, is in the New Testament early Christianity at at SLU. He doesn't say he saved the Bible nonstop. Right. We're familiar with this. Uh -huh. And it's important that we sometimes we just need to stop and pause and go, oh, what does this actually say? What does this actually mean? Right? So read the Bible on the Bible's terms. Second takeaway point is maybe we need to reevaluate Jesus' birth situation. Right? Now, this is extremely uncomfortable for me because I really love Right? I love how Linus tells the Christmas story from the Revised Standard Version. Right? Can you imagine but, saying uh, this in front of America? This is the Christmas story. Now, what I do want to say is, I think this might just be a misleading legend. Right? Jesus is still born with animals. Right. Right? He's still born in Bethlehem to Mary. We haven't actually changed any of the substance of Jesus' birth story. What we've done is we've said, hey, like, let's think about this slightly differently. Okay. Um, it's still humbling for God to be born in the animal room of a house. Right? That is still incredible. Okay? 
that's a great story. That's, there's incredible drama and there's incredible substance to that. God is willing to become human, not in a palace, but in a house. My, one of the points that I take away from this is we probably don't need to over-dramatize this and go, oh my gosh, Jesus came to Bethlehem and there was just no place for him to be born, and so they sent him out to a cave and he got born there. There's already enough drama, there's already enough importance going on here. We don't need to make it even more uh, stylized. The third takeaway point is we need to recognize the different viewpoints of Scripture. And we didn't really touch on this a whole lot, but we kind of begin to see this. Matthew and Luke tell the story of Jesus' birth. Right? They coordinate, they're unified, they're not disagreeing with each other or anything like that. But Matthew and Luke have specific ways they're telling the story. Luke is focusing on one thing, Matthew is focusing on a different thing. And as we bring those two stories together to tell us the Christmas story, it can be helpful to stand back and go, oh, this is how Matthew talks about this, and this is how Luke talks about this. And those mean things for us individually, and they mean things for us together. There's, a, there's such richness to the scriptures. Let's not paper over it in an attempt to tell just one side of the story. Reminds me of one of the first classes that I took at Council, literature of the New Testament, uh-huh. the styles of the writers, why they wrote that way, and what, what yes. they were coming back, what kind of background they had when they, when they wrote. Yep, exactly. Yep. I took um, back as an undergrad. It wasn't my first class. One of my first classes was a literature of the New Testament course, very similar. Uh-huh. And you just, as a Christian, you grow up and you're like, yeah, this is what the Bible says, and there's kind of this unified story that we. And then you sit down and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John side by side, and you're like, whoa, mm-hmm. like there's some really interesting stuff here. And then you bring all of the mix, and it's like, whoa, this is totally, not totally different, but like this is, you can feel how different this is. And that's true in English, it's even more true in Greek. I love this class, just so you know. Oh, I love yeah. the challenge. This? Yes. All right. We are successful on our first week. I love this. I love, I love changing things that I have thought for, I'm 46 years old. 46 years old. Okay. For 46 years, Jesus was born in a barn. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's what I got. That's what I know. Mm-hmm. So I love finding truth in scripture that I didn't catch before that maybe God is going to use you to show us this truth and thinking of it differently. It like reminds me of heaven because when you get there, all yeah. things will be made right. clear. Whoa, that's not how I thought of that, right? We now see through glass darkly, but then we will see face to face, as Paul says. It's going to be totally different. My hope for this class is that we can continue to look at legends like this and do that very quickly. We can see God's truth. You know, not necessarily a whole new way, right? right? But that we can dig deeper. And that he will be glorified in this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not you, Jake, but you're a great guy. Not, no, not That God could be glorified in this and go, whoa. Been reading this 46 years, right? Through what other people said, our people, our culture, right? What right. they thought of it. Yeah. Let's look at it with fresh eyes and see what God has for us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. All right. Um, I have to get up to nursery, but any final questions or concerns or thoughts about this legend or kind of class? Or I gotta get Ashley here. I gotta get yeah. Ashley here. She will love it. She will love it. Mm-hmm. You think I talk a lot? <laughs> 
I love it when people talk. I am always happy to take questions. And uh, seriously, this is this is not about me. This is about you guys and really helping you guys understand uh, and walk through it. And well, you're gonna learn too. Obviously. Oh, I always learn a tremendous amount by studying for this and getting things prepared. You guys are like whoa. Oh, well, and then just coming to class. People will always say, you guys have said things today. I'm like, well, I hadn't quite thought of it that way. I mean, right. just, that's always something I get out of this. Um, one of the reasons I really enjoy teaching. Yes. So, thank you guys for being here. Well, thank you for sharing with us. Of course, of course. Do you like it, Karen? All right. I got grants approved, too. Thank you, 15. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. <laughs> that is a big deal. Uh, yep. Don't need to tell that story right now. We'll see <laughs> Next week, we're going to continue our conversations about Christmas legends. We're going to look at a couple couple more things that we think we know about the Christmas story, but may, again, may or may not be the best way to think about it. Um, we'd love to have you guys back. Um, we'll be here more willing to oh, yeah. say no eyes. All right, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then um, well, I'm going to get up to nursery. Thank you for listening to the Pursuing Veritas podcast hope that you enjoyed what you heard today and that you will consider subscribing either via pursuingveritas.com or iTunes.